This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today I'm excited to introduce you to Rochelle Weinstein. Rochelle is the USA Today and Amazon bestselling author of emotionally driven women's fiction, including This Is Not How It Ends, Somebody's Daughter, Where We Fall, The Morning After, and What We Leave Behind. Her latest book is When We Let Go and is chock full of warmth, heartache, and hope. How's that? Uh, here today to talk about that as well as her career as a whole, is Rochelle Weinstein. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Rochelle. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Great to have you here. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Um, but I'm going to ask you the first question, uh, which is the question I ask everybody right out of the gate, which is, uh, Rochelle, where does your story as a writer begin? Um, if you're going by publishing date, it's probably 2012. Um, but the seeds were planted years and years before. I was always a closeted writer. I wrote in a journal. Um, the only person that ever read my words was my brother, Robert, who used to write in the margins. Like, why would you do that? What were you doing at the, the, the bar down the street? You know, so that was my, my first reader. Why but, Robert? Um, why, why were you? Because um, that's a very vulnerable thing to have people read you know, some of your early stuff. What was it about your brother that made you feel comfortable doing that? Oh, gosh, no, he snuck. He oh, did. got it. So you, this he was did. not a voluntary exercise. No, I wasn't handing that off to him. He snuck into my drawer and he he read it and whatever. I'm very close to my brother, so it was fine. And, you is, know, he older, is he older or younger? He's older, but sometimes, you know, you have to wonder, like, do you write things because you want people to read them? Like, you know, that like subliminal, like, like that unconscious like desire to have somebody hear you. I don't know. We, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole yet. But um, so, yeah, I, you know, listen, I, I'd always loved writing. I loved writing stories, but I really never viewed it as a, as a, a, a career. And I was always a huge reader. Um, I, my parents were divorced. My mom went back to work. So I was like that latchkey kid. I was the baby of four, but I was always home and alone. I felt alone. So my books were my friends and, and I always say like Judy Bloom, Danielle Steele, Sydney Sheldon, they raised me in the absence of my parents being physically present all the time. 
risk. So, you know, I was always fascinated by it, but I never looked at it as something that I could do for a career. So fast forward and I went to school in Maryland and then I moved out to Los Angeles and I worked for the LA Weekly and I was actually in, you know, I worked for News Weekly, but I wasn't on the editorial side. I was on marketing, advertising, promotional side. So I dealt with all the record labels and the film studios that were having releases. So it was totally fun, totally cool. Uh, then I moved back to Florida and got my dream job in the Miami Herald, which is quite shocking, but I did. Um, it was with the Box Music Network. I don't know if you're familiar with it or you remember it, but the no, Box, not. The box um, was what MTV2 it, it was, used to be. You know, it was the jukebox. You can call and you can request songs. So we were based on South Beach and I worked in the um, advertising and um, promotional department where we handled all advertising, marketing, promotions for every single record label in the country. So my kids always said to me, your job before was so much cooler. <laughs> it probably was, you know, we were hanging out with like Britney Spears and Dave Matthews and Hootie and the Blowfish. And I've heard of some of those people. Yeah. <laughs> I'm dating myself a little no, bit. No, no, those, I mean, I look, uh, when Cracked Rearview came out, I, I think I was a freshman or sophomore in college, uh, you know, the, the big breakthrough album for Hootie and the Blowfish. And I oh, mean, yeah. that song, Hold My Hand, just, I mean, that song has stayed with me. Um, I actually wrote a piece about it not too long ago because my, I have a twin brother um, who was my going through some, what's that? My husband's a twin. Look at that. More, more and similarities. We, and, and we need to fill in the audience because you have triplets and I have twins. That's why that came up. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Well, the audience, they, they'll, they'll, they'll figure it out at some point, maybe. Um, but uh, I just remember that out that song, that, that sort of that first signal, a single, um, man, that, that, that impacted with me and stayed with me for a very long time. I love those guys. Did you get to meet Darius Rucker and, and the gang? Yeah. Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, but music has that way of affecting a lot of us. And a lot of writers are also very much in tune to music and it inspires them. And, and, um, you know, you always have that soundtrack playing in the background when you're writing. So yeah. music has always influenced my writing. In fact, my first book was, was heavily influenced by music. So, um, the box got bought by MTV and I had just had my twins and they offered me my position in New York city, but how could I take my kids away from the grandparents, right? They were all down here. So um, I declined and they actually gave me a year's severance. And I tell you this because I was like, what am I going to do with my life? Like, you know, obviously being a mom is such an important job and it's filled with responsibilities and whatnot, but I had been working since I was 14 years old. And it was almost like I was questioning my identity at the time. Um, so I literally sat down and wrote my first book. I had no formal training. I didn't take any classes. I just, I knew that I had a story to tell and I just sat down and wrote it. That was 2000. In the meantime, over the years, you know, I edited it, it sat under the bed. Um, you know, while I was raising the boys and volunteering at the PTA and, you know, we were, we juggle, moms are jugglers. So my husband had a, a, an ex-girlfriend in, um, when he lived in New York city, who was a, a literary agent and he reached out to her and she kindly, you know, she read the book and she put me in touch with an editor in New York city. And I had these like fabulous delusions of she and I on like Oprah's couch and, you know, we both dated Steven and it would be like the, st the story behind the story. Um, that didn't happen. 
she did not take on the book, but she gave me some wonderful advice. And I'm, I'm still indebted to her, to, you know, even this, even today. And I shopped it around and the book was rejected across the board. Um, so I said, which is not, which is not a reflection of your writing or the story. No. But that is just a very common thing that happens, especially first time author, you know, without a name. I mean, that's, that's typically, you know, and this is for the that's benefit the of the norm. audience who might be doing the same thing. That, that is the norm. That is that's the, norm. the norm. That is the absolute norm. And anyone going into this field has to have thick skin and not take it personally and persevere. Um, you know, listen, that's why in part it's so important for me. Like this morning I, I had a conference call with a, a, a writer and I know how hard it is to break into this business. So I'm always offering advice. I'm over, I'm always offering contacts. You know, you can never forget the people that helped you out and you need to pay it forward. But back to the story. So I got rejected and I wrote another book the morning after. And this was when self-publishing was on the rise and I caught an, an early wave. It was 2012 and I just decided, you know, and this is a question for writers out there. What is your goal for your story? Why are you writing? What do you want? Some people want to be a New York Times bestseller and they want to retire and they want to make a gazillion dollars. And I tell them that they, you know, they might be nice, picking the wrong field. Very nicely <laughs> that you're picking the wrong fields. That let's just leave it at that. Um, but you know, some people just have a story they want to put out in the world, one story. Some people have multiple stories. You have to really ask yourself what you want out of your writing. Do you want a career? Do you want, you know, the one-hit wonder? So I wanted, I wanted a tangible piece of evidence out in the world of what I'd written and what I'd done. So I bit the bullet, I self-published. I knew that there was going to be a credibility factor. I knew that there was a stigma uh, associated with self-publishing at the time and vanity press was, you know, the, that word was popping around all around. And I just said, you know what, this is what I want. This is what's gonna work for me. So. The two books came out and I used my marketing, advertising, and promotional skills and I rocked it, you know, and I worked with a publicist and, you know, grassroots and local TV and, you know, I had all these contacts from the business that I was in, you know, and I was in Chicago and I was in LA and I was in Miami and I was working my butt off to promote this book. And, you know, again, a lot of writers don't know that it is a full-time job marketing your work. Yeah. You know, and, one of the things I typically ask people is, you know, lessons they learn the hard way in yeah. the publication process. And most people tell me that th what they learned was writing is the easy part. Writing is the fun part. It's the, the, the promoting it and getting it out there um, beyond just friends and family that, that they find to be particularly challenging. But you have, a, you know, as you said, you had a leg up given your, your previous career. Yeah, I listen, my, my career definitely helped um, and it gave me that, that foundation. But, you know, not everybody has that and you have to really capitalize on what network you do have and you need to be really creative. There's millions of books out there and we're all jockeying for position and it's more now than ever um, with self-publishing and with small presses. So the two books did very well. Um, and when I wrote my third book, I was able to finally get an agent and that agent got me my book deal and my, so I have a total of seven books, five are with Lake Union, that fifth one comes out in the spring of 2023. But this is the piece that I love sharing. 
I was, so, so what we leave behind came out in 2012. I was in North Carolina, probably in 2014, 15 in the summer, having dinner with another author. And we were talking about publishers marketplace. And if you're in the business, you know, the publishers marketplace is the Bible for, you know, agents and publishing houses and seeing deals and what's happening, what's shaking up the business. So I went on and um, in, in the form of like Googling yourself and I pulled up my page, something I had never done. And there was bestseller status. And I said, what, what's this? You know, I, so I clicked on it and it said that what we leave behind had hit the USA Today bestseller list in, well, this was 2017 or something, I think. And it said in 2014. So three years later, on a Thursday, a throwback Thursday, I found out that my self-published little book, The Little Engine That Could, hit the USA Today bestseller list, and I never knew. And they didn't reach out with a party? Like Ed McMahon no, didn't show no, up at your door no, with like a big check no. or something? Right. And the reason, about a dated reference. The reason, the reason I tell this is because the author that I was with, the next day she texted me, and I quote her all the time. Her name is Rebecca Warner. And she said, you know what's so fascinating about this is that you didn't have this buoying you through some of the worst times, like the rejections and the publishing houses that said no, and the agents who said no, and the manuscripts that, that got the big no's, and you just kept going. And she said, it's a testament to your perseverance. And that's just something that I share with readers, because I think that's the greatest story of all, you know, to be able to move forward in the face of adversity not having, you know, those accolades and milestones to, to move you. So that was a really incredible experience. Yeah. I mean, you know, writing, you know, you, you open yourself up to so much vulnerability just in, in the story you're telling. And of course, you know, cause we all put ourselves in, into our characters to some right. extent. Um, oh, so yeah. that it's vulnerable. You're vulnerable because you're, you're, you're putting it out into the world and, you know, there are critics out there. There are people who may or may not like your, like your stuff. So vulnerability is a big part of being a writer. I think being curious is a big part of being a writer because you have to be curious about the world around you and see things in a different way in order to tell that story that hasn't been told, but should have been at some point. But in addition to that curiosity and vulnerability, being able to persevere through all this is, is really a superpower because there is so much rejection. You do you know, wonder all this work, all this time you're putting in, to these, these stories that you're writing, you know, are people going to care? Um, you you believe they they will because you're doing it, but I mean there is that that whole perseverance side that that people have to be ready for when when they are trying to put something out into the world. You have to persevere. You know, it's interesting. Um, on Instagram today, uh, Zibby Owens, she's a big book yep. influencer. I don't know if you saw her post today. She. Um, she, it was a picture of a quote from BookScan that of the millions and millions of books, only like the, the average is like 5,000 in sales. And the comments and the, the commentary was so fascinating to me, but, but the common denominator was a lot of these authors were writing, you know, why they're writing. Are you writing for those numbers? Are you writing because it's something that you just can't not do, you know? I write because I can't not write. Yeah. You know, I don't feel like I'm living when I'm not writing. 
I don't, certainly, certainly the numbers and certainly the success are important and they matter, but you really have to be very clear about why you're sitting down and writing and what's important to you. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the numbers are important. Validation is important. Like I do want to know whether or not people are enjoy the stuff that I do. And I know other authors feel the same way. Like you want to have some kind of validation, but the driving force of what you're creating shouldn't be outside validation. Right. It should be the story that you just feel like, hey, no one's going to tell this better than I can. And I'm the one who has to tell the story and I have to tell it right now because that's what's going to fuel you through the late nights, the early mornings, all the self-doubt, the imposter syndrome. I mean, you name it. Um, but it's that drive, that inner drive. That's that's going to be the fuel, not the not the book sales that you might have or the bestseller status if you're fortunate enough. And I'll tell you that imposter syndrome, every single author experiences it. You know, last my last book, This Is Not How It Ends, was an Amazon first reads, which is like literally being hit with the pretty stick. I mean, your book shoots right up to like number the top 10 in the Amazon store. That book did phenomenally well. By the summertime, I had had over 100,000 in sales. And my next book was a nightmare to sell. You know, and then, you're, you know, people are looking at you and they're watching you on social media and they're like, oh, it just comes so easily to her. And look at her. And she's got this going and she had all these sales. And it, you're only as good as your last book. Yeah. And there, is, there are so many ups and downs to this business. And anyone who tells you otherwise is full of it. All right. Absolutely. And there's no overnight success either. I mean, no. just because somebody didn't know your name yesterday and all of a right. sudden you're all over, you know, right. list, yeah, that doesn't mean that you know, no one sees the struggle. They don't see, right. you know, the 10 years of, of, you know, trial and error or 20 years of trial and error. I mean, there's stuff I wrote, you know, 15, 20 years ago that will never see the light of day. Um, but I poured my heart and soul into those projects and, and um, you know, eventually decided not to do anything with them. But um, no one sees the early stuff. No, they don't see the blood, sweat and tears. And, you know, unless they're your brother and they're snooping through your journal. Right, exactly. I mean, that's, you know. Well, I stopped writing. You know, it's interesting. I stopped writing in a journal and I started writing fiction. So it just parlayed that into um, stories. But, you know, one question I'm often asked and it's something to think about is when do you, when do you, when or if do you give up, you know, because listen, it doesn't work for everybody. And I've, you know, I've had authors call me and, you know, give me their sales for three books, four books, five, whatever. And they're talking about giving up. And sometimes I really think about the advice I'm offering, like, should they keep going? Should they give up? And I, I, I do believe there is some point possibly for some writers and I, and I guess it deals with a lot of different variables, like if they can't afford to live on, you know, their writing salary, which is nil. Um, but it is an interesting thing to see who stays and who goes. Yeah. Yeah, no, to totally. Um, because, you know, it's not, I think, you know, eh, it's, it's so hard to say because, you know, I, I think about that one person who was about to give up and then all of a sudden they hit big. Um, yeah. you know, so it's just so hard to, like, I don't know how I'd, how I would counsel somebody like that. I mean, clearly if, if they can't find the time to practice their craft, mm -hmm. um, you've got to question whether or not you're prioritizing it enough or, or how badly you want it. But right. I, I think so, so many people like, and, and this is advice that authors, you know, share on this program all the time, which is just write, just write right. every day, you know, flex that writing muscle. You have to find the time to do it. And, you know, you, you could borrow that time from other places, 
you know, and it, no, but and right. if you can't, then you know maybe it is time to hang it up. You're right. So let's talk about uh, when we let go. What can you tell me about this book? Um, this was probably this is probably the book that broke me, but it's also giving and and that's the reason why it's giving me the most satisfaction right now. Um, it, it's it's the story of Avery Beckett, and she's harboring a a tragic secret from her past. And she's in a relationship with a, man, a, a, a widowed man who has three children. And she probably chose this man because it kept her at arm's distance and she didn't have to reveal her true self. So her father um, is hospitalized at her family home in North Carolina. The book begins in, in Miami at Vizcaya, which you probably know about Miss Vizcaya. And she journeys home, um, I'm sorry, Jude proposes and she doesn't say yes and she doesn't say no, but, but her, her indifference causes them to have a break and she jumps in the car to go home to her home in North Carolina and deal with you know, her tragic past. And she has a stowaway, which is, which is um, Elle, um, Jude's 15 year old daughter. And they've been butting heads and they don't have the closest relationship. But, you know, Elle is broken. She's 15. She's lost her mother. She doesn't like this woman in her father's life. And Elle is, and Avery is holding on to her own set of grief and struggles. So it's their journey, their, their, their literal, literal journey uh, to the mountains to heal each other. And it is a book of hope and healing and second chances and I loved writing these two characters and I loved seeing their, their growth and how they relied upon one another. They, they worked off of each other and, and just that dynamic. I, I had the best time writing the two of them, even though sometimes the subject was a little emotional. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always love getting into the, the heads and, and lives of, of the characters I write because it's, it's cathartic in a way you could live lives that you know you you wouldn't have the chance to live before i'm curious though um because you know i think we all bring secrets to relationships um you know and it, it it's it's you have to you have to make yourself vulnerable there's that word again vulnerability i feel like yeah. brene brown at this point but um you know <laughs> we love her. Yeah, we do um but you know you do have to make yourself vulnerable to reveal your true self to other other human beings and and i think i think i know people in you know, who have been together 30-ish years and still have a hard time revealing their true selves to others. What, what was your inspiration for, you know, that aspect of Avery's character? Well, I, I, I'm like you. I'm an observer of human behavior. I love turning emotion into stories. I've, you know, my childhood was a little, there were, there were struggles in my childhood, um, like everybody else in the world. But at some point in my life, I decided that I didn't want to feel a certain way anymore. And I made some major life changes and a major commitment to my mental health. And I've always taken pieces of that experience and placed them in my book. I've always wanted to impart these lessons to readers. Um, you know, you talk about vulnerability and you talk about holding secrets. And I, I see people in my life that they're struggling like I was and they're not doing anything about it, you know, and you just want to like shake them. So sometimes I, I feel that most of the time I feel that my fiction is a result of my own personal experience and wanting to share it and help others. And while my books are entertaining, 
there's also that teachable moment, you know, very some important lessons about how we live our life and the weight of secrets and regret and guilt, you know, it, it really inhibits us from fully living. So um, for this book in particular, it was about how the weight of pain and regret and anger and loss was, you know, inhibiting these two women. And I just wanted to show their emotional journey to becoming whole again. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I think so much, I mean, so many people can relate to that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know I can personally relate to a lot of what you, what you just said without yeah. going into to kind of, you know, my world a little bit, but I can absolutely relate to it. And I see other yeah. people, you know, you're right. I mean, you can be crushed by the, the, the weight of secrets, you know, you, you really can. Um, and so much of it is fear that, okay, well, this other person may not love me um, if they found out about this, or um, I don't want to rock the boat by, you know, revealing that I'm unhappy about a certain part of the situation. So I'll just be quiet. And then that quiet over time, you know, slowly transforms to resentment. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're in a situation that you never dreamed of being in. And, um, you know, you to some extent, not giving another person the, the credit for, you know, how, how strong they could be. I don't know. I'm getting really deep here. And I, I apologize. No, I love that. that. I love story. that. I think it's fantastic that you're getting deep. I think that um, one one thing that you missed, which is shocking because you got everything, um, is that need for to be loved and to be accepted. And I think that there's like a deep-seated fear, maybe you said at the beginning, of um, um, that I'm unlovable, mm-hmm. you know, and if I share this that, you know, whether it's you've grown up in, in, a, in a situation where you didn't feel worthy or you didn't feel loved or affection or whatnot, it's, you know, it's exposing this side of yourself in such a vulnerable way and feeling maybe I'm unlovable. Yeah. It's a really big one. And, you know, not to get, well, I mean, why stop now <laughs> in terms deep. of getting deep? But I think birth order has a lot to do with it too. Like, I mean, and the role you play in your family of origin, like in my family of origin, I was always, I had to be the optimist. I had to be the fixer, the problem solver. So you're Um, the baby. I, well, the twins, me and my twin brother were the babies. Um, But in my, in my twin, Jimmy, um, uh, I almost said God rest his soul, but he's very much alive. Um, (laughs) Oh, very much alive. Um, He would, but he was always sick as a kid. So like, I was always alone with my grandmother um, as my mother was, you know, helping Jim. So I learned independence from a very, very early age. And my, my, our siblings are much older than us. So they were kind of off doing their own thing. I think you're um, my spirit animal. Oh, really? You're freaking me out a little bit. Oh, please well, tell, tell me more about that. I'm, well, no, I'm the baby of four. And my sister was seven years older. My brothers were always doing sports. I was always home and I've always, and I'm, so I'm the baby. And it's not so much about like being spoiled or being like, you know, the, you know, cutesy little baby. It's about growing up much quicker. Yeah. And I am, I am, I attribute so much of my independence and my, you know, willing, my ability to get things done based on my birth order. And I had no choice. Like, I absolutely. Was, like, absolutely. It was like benign neglect at that point. Yeah. I mean, my, my grandmother was, uh, an Italian woman, um, seamstress by trade, you know, immigrant. Uh, she taught me, you know, when I was five years old, how to make, you know, her, her tomato sauce. 
Um, and I learned independence from a very young age because I had to be more independent. Right. I mean, it's definitely more independent than my twin who to this day, he sends me a text this morning. He's like, my blood pressure is a little off. What do you think I should do? I'm like, I, maybe call the doctor. Well, like, I don't doctor. know. Like, I don't know how I could solve this problem for you, but you know, maybe call the, he's like, you I've got this, conjunctivitis. Um, very rarely, Hi, but if he, he Jimmy, is that his name? Jimmy. Hi, Jimmy. Yeah. My dog keeps popping up because that's my dog's name. <laughs> but um, the the danger, I think, or the, the the downside to being so independent is when you do need to rely on other people. Like when you are strong, you can't do it. Like my wife, it drives my wife crazy. She's like, can I do anything for you? I'm like, no, absolutely not. You can't do anything for me. Um, and then, you know, it, you know, it is what it is, but it, no, it's I hard. Have the same situation. It's hard. I have a very hard time asking for help. It's true. It's a curse. Um, so how, how do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, how do you deal with asking for help or do you just avoid it? Like I do. Um, I avoid it and I try to figure it out on my own and I'm a complete B-I-T-C-H in the, in the process. <laughs> um, but then there's, when it's really bad, I, I, there, there's like a very few select people that I could really go to, yeah. to, to get what I need. But I reckon, but the, well, the first piece is you recognize it and I recognize it. We know exactly what we're doing. Oh yeah. No, my therapist has helped me with that. Uh, the question is, even though I recognize it, doesn't mean that, you know, I, I, I could still, yeah, I still have a hard time expressing it, expressing my needs. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the hardest thing for me to do is express my needs. So I do it through characters sometimes though. Like I will live vicariously through characters. You know, I wrote this story about a guy who loses his job and then goes on this adventure in Hawaii. Um, something I've never done, but I could live vicariously through um, Kelly Carson. Um, right. who had one hell of an adventure, I have to say. I kind of want to live, I kind of want to actually do that adventure for myself, but it might lead to the end of my marriage. Um. <laughs> I do think that we, as far as characters go, I create characters that are my, that are my alter ego, mm -hmm. or they are just like me. You know, I think you could do it either way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, let's get to know you a little bit more. Um, and I do that by asking a specific series of questions. Um, first one being, uh, tell me, Rochelle, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were growing up, when you were a kid? What did you like to watch, if anything? Well, now I'm giving away my age, but I don't care about that. I'm kidding. Um, when I was growing up, like the, I, first of all, I loved the after school specials. Oh my God. But do you remember I just went down a rabbit hole with a friend of mine last Ooh, week about after school specials. Um, cause I think they were on ABC really usually, but I remember there was, there were so many good ones, so many bad so ones, but so many, many good, good ones. ones. Oh yeah. Oh, I loved them. Okay. So what? I was watching happy days. I was watching Laverne and Charlie. I was watching, um, oh my God, one day at a time. Three's company. Oh God, Three's I love Three's company. company. I love all those shows. Um, I love all those shows, but the one I thought you were going to mention, cause you mentioned one offshoot of happy days, which was Laverne and Shirley, but what about Mork and Mindy? Because that was another, you know, happy yeah, days Mork offshoot. Mork and Mindy was good. Mork and Mindy was good. Uh, wait, what about Love Boat and Fancy? <laughs> Are you kidding? I'm a Love Boat. I have a PhD in Love Boat. Are you kidding? I love, I watched the, I started rewatching it during the pandemic. Oh my God. Um, and you realize just how cringy so I many know. of those situations were like Dr. Bricker was um, he me too a few ladies on that ship. Um, there's no doubt. I mean, you could not make Love Boat today. 
No, um, well, you couldn't make it. You can't make Pretty Woman today. I mean, you can't make anything today. Yeah, that's Pretty a Woman's tough one. Favorite movie. So. That's a good movie. And Pretty Woman's a great movie. Um, but I would love about Fantasy Island. Um, yeah. Dallas. Heart to Heart Dynasty. Oh, those, those primetime soap dramas were okay. gold. So I'm writing my seventh book and it's based in part, it's dual timeline. We've got seventies and nineties. So I've been going down the rabbit hole of like all these shows and just even just writing this book and immersing myself in this book, I miss the simplicity of life, like before technology. And I know that we need technology and I get all that and I get all its, its wonderful strengths, but like, come on, playing box ball in the street and, and the street lights come on and you know, it's time to go home for dinner. And it's just the innocence and being able to have love boat without being critiqued and, and, um, you know, what is that called when they're, you know what I'm going to say when they're yeah. canceled. Yeah. You know, um, so one of my daughters, Gracie, she and I watch stranger things. Like that's our show that we watch together. And you know, that takes place in the eighties. And I was like these kids age in at this period of time, maybe I was a little bit older, but, um, but they're on their bikes. They're not, they're never home they're they're playing outside and she's like was it really like it back then and i'm like absolutely and it was so much better than than how you grew up with these things in front of your face all day long so i mean listen i'm guilty and i use it and i utilize it but i just i just love the nostalgia of that period of time absolutely absolutely my my first book um was about uh, a primetime soap from the 80s um and what happened to the characters after it went off the air Oh, wow. um, so it had a little bit of that 80s. There were so, I mean, more 80s references than I could count, but um, cool. they had, um, but, but it became, okay, how, did, how do they find relevance? How did the lead character find relevance in today's world and about reality TV? So it was a little bit of that juxtaposition there. Right, but that was right. very fun taking that trip back in time, I have to say. Yeah. And yeah. self-indulgent. Yeah. Um, but I move on. Um, so great TV shows. I approve of them all. Um, how about musical artists? I know you spent some time, as we talked before, um, working in the music industry. What were you listening to kind of growing up? Who were some of your favorites? Oh, God, Genesis and Phil Collins. Um, Did you ever get to see them live in their heyday? Yes, of course. I saw them and in 92. Like, I, 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 I guess I'm an old soul because, and, and this is one thing my parents passed down is, music there was always like neil diamond and john denver in our house and i loved that music even as a, a a grade school kid so i was influenced by neil diamond john denver um beat uh my first concert was at the orange bowl it was beach boys and commodores oh wow i'm not saying that they were my favorites but i'm saying that was my first concert that i remember um but i just was into kind of like with the way i feel about books I was, I'm not really, it's not that I'm not loyal. I'm certainly going to go out and buy all your books and, you know, my friend, my author friend books and I support, but I have to feel something when I hear a song or when I read a book. So I like all different songs and artists and all different kinds of books as long as yeah. they make me feel something. Yeah. I love that you said Genesis. Um, Cause I love early Genesis, you know, Peter Gabriel, um, when, when Phil was still on the drums, but uh, mm -hmm. that first album with Phil Collins, um, I think it was just called Genesis. I can't, I don't remember. I think it had That's All on it, a couple of other songs. It was so good. And then they got a little, 
No. Less I'm progressive, more poppy over time. But listening to any bad, well, yeah, probably Phil Collins, I'd say by the time I was in like it was the early 90s, like separate lives and that yeah. kind of stuff you're talking about was poppy. But their early my the best album ever was um Don't Let Him Steal Your Heart Away. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? I don't. I don't actually. Was that the name of the album or song, a single from the album? Got it. Follow you, follow me. Follow you, follow me was um, my ever. sister and her husband's. They wanted it to be their wedding song, but somebody right. talked them out of it. But man, that's such a great song. I Amazing. love that keyboard solo, kind of three quarters in. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So speaking of authors, um, whose works would you bring with you if you had to be split? Let's say you were on Gilligan's Island, right? Because you didn't mention that show, but I will. Um, you were stranded on a desert island and you could bring, I don't know, uh, three author books, the books from three authors with you. Who would be on your list of authors to, to keep you company on that desert island? I would probably pick an author that has like 50 books in their, uh, their backlist. <laughs> Certainly not going to pick my friend that has one book. If I could bring all their books, is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. I mean, just, but who do you like to read? In other words, who do you really like to read? Who could, who could, who could help you kill time on that desert island? I mean, I love Taylor Jenkins read. Love, love, love. Um, so I would probably bring her books. Um, you know, that's the thing. Like I, I, I like, I look up, I like an individual book. So it's hard for me. I loved Paper Palace, A Little Life, like those books I would take with me because I could read them over a million times. But you know what I probably would bring? Danielle Steele. She's got like 9 million books. She does have a That will keep me busy books. for the rest of my life. Some of them are a little steamy too, I think. Um, not all the ingredients, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. If you can be alone, I mean. Um, how about this? How do you feel when you're staring at a blank piece of paper or a computer screen and, and you're, you're trying to write something and the screen or page, page is blank? How do you feel? I don't know about you, but when I open like a like a notebook of blank pages, I'm like, oh, I get so excited about the prospect of filling up the pages. I get excited when I see that. Um, but when I'm looking at a blank screen and I'm struggling with the right words and the right sentence, um, I get up from my computer and I walk away from it and I go for a walk and I clear my head or I, I just, I, I get away from it. Yeah, I used to go for long runs if I ever experienced some kind of anxiety. You're no um, longer my spirit animal. Oh, really? You're not a runner? You don't do it? Mm. Well, like, I mean, look. I'm like a fast walker. That's fine. I've been fast walking recently because I broke my foot three months ago or two months ago. So, um, you know, maybe maybe I could earn my way back into your spirit animal realm uh, before the end of our interview. We'll see. Um, how about uh, um, words of advice? If you could give your uh, younger self some words of advice, what would you tell your younger self? You know, maybe that, that you know, that younger Rochelle is writing in the journal, the brother snooping in. Um, how would you kind of reassure her, make her feel better about herself? If you could tell her something. Everything that you're feeling that's bringing you down, like whatever the struggle is right now, it's not always going to be this way. And at some point you're going to learn from it. So just don't run away from it. Try to like feel it, experiencing, experience it because it's happening for a reason and it's part of you and it's gonna just make you better and stronger. And I would probably tell my younger self to be a better listener and learn to love yourself first, not in a disgusting narcissistic way. Sure. 
but um, having, you know, self-worth and knowing your value, because if you don't love yourself first, nobody's ever going to be able to love you. Yeah. Why would, why would somebody love you if you're not, if right. you're not, you know, that, that, that's such great advice. And yeah, you, I mean, we do, do have those struggles in childhood that are fuel for, I think our creativity later on, you know, we can tap into that, um, you know, provided we, we figure out a, a positive way of processing right. all those things that, that kind of happens. So I, I love that. I love that advice. Very good. You passed the test. Oh. <laughs> You're just trying to get on my good side now. I'm trying to win my way back. <laughs> you know, running, apparently running is, uh, people tell me it's not good for me. Maybe uh, I'll never learn that lesson, but um all right. So uh, the author is Rochelle Weinstein. The, the book is When We Let Go. Um, you heard her talk about it earlier, of course. Um, I assume it's available wherever books are sold? Um, yes. Yes. Very good. Um, and Rochelle, where can people go? And if they wanted to learn more about you in terms of social media, websites, any- RochelleWeinstein.com. And I highly recommend signing up for my newsletter because it's almost like reading my diary very open, very authentic, very honest, sometimes funny, even though I'm not a funny person at all. Sometimes there's like a little bit of smidgen of humor, um, but it's very real and I'm not hawking my books all day. Very good. So get that newsletter, RochelleWeinstein.com. And of course, I'll put all that in the show notes so people can uh, easily reference that. And social and media, of course. And social media. There yeah. you go. Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff. Yeah. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. All of I say all that good stuff. I don't necessarily consider all of that to be good I stuff, know. but it's necessary. You're it's being necessary. nice. I get it. <laughs> I'm trying. All right, Rochelle, this was a fun conversation. Thanks for stopping Thank by. Thank you, Mike. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.